Who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbors? And if Russia proceeds, it is Russia and Russia alone that bears the responsibility. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast that's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com, where we have been fighting like hell for nearly 20 years now to protect what's left of your democracy, and today is no different, in fact, more so, as democracy appears to be facing its greatest threat since the end of World War II in Eastern Europe, and yes, in Texas. Welcome to the broadcast. I am happy to say that the server problem that we have been wrestling with at bradblog.com, at least for now, seems to be straightened out, I think, I hope. Yay. Thanks for your uh, patience uh, to those of you who tolerated our server outage for the past several days. Indeed. Or maybe you're welcome. I don't know. Depends <laughs> how you look at it. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. A big thanks to those of you who have uh, helped us out with much needed funding via bradblog.com slash donate. We lost a few of the most recent comment threads at the blog and had to restore a few blog items from drafts. But hopefully things are now back in order mostly, at least for now. Hopefully our long national blog nightmare of server outages at random times will abate, but we shall see. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Yes, we will. Uh, unfortunately, that is the only thing I'm happy about today. Beginning, of course, with the nightmares rising in Eastern Europe right now. 
Uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky on Tuesday night in the latest said that he was calling up some of the country's military reservists as the threat of a full-scale Russian invasion grew. But he added that there was no need for a full military mobilization at this time. Time will tell if he is right about that. There are about 250,000 troops in Ukraine's armed forces. There are some 140,000 reservists. They may soon be set to face off against anywhere from 150 to nearly 200,000 Russian troops surrounding the former Soviet Republic turned democratic nation, uh, surrounding them on three sides in a conflict in Europe unlike anything we've seen since World War II. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden ordered heavy U.S. financial sanctions against Russian banks and oligarchs on Tuesday, stepping up the West's confrontation with Moscow, even as Russian lawmakers authorized uh, President Vladimir Putin to use military force outside of their own country. Biden, in brief, in a brief address from the White House, accused Putin of flagrantly violating international law in what he called the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, and he promised that more sanctions would be coming if Putin proceeded further. Biden warned that, quote, Russia is... Russia just announced that it is carving out a big chunk of Ukraine before adding that he still hopes uh, diplomacy is possible. For now, Biden announced what he called the first tranche in a series of stiff sanctions to punish Russia for invading Ukraine. The president joined the 27 European Union members who unanimously agreed on Tuesday to levy their own initial set of sanctions targeting Russian officials over their actions in Ukraine. Germany also announced that it was halting the process of certifying the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia, which is a lucrative deal long sought by Moscow. The move was applauded by the U.N. and NATO allies and cited as part of a united response to Russia. None of us will be fooled by Putin's claims about Ukraine, the U.S. president said in his remarks, accusing the Russian president of, quote, setting up a rationale to take more territory by force. Here was President Biden on Tuesday afternoon at the White House. Well, good afternoon. Yesterday, Vladimir Putin recognized two regions of Ukraine as independent states. And he bizarrely asserted that these regions are no longer part of Ukraine and their sovereign territory. To put it simply, Russia just announced that it is carving out a big chunk of Ukraine. Last night, Putin authorized Russian forces to deploy into the region, these regions. Today, he asserted that these regions are actually extend deeper than the two areas he recognized, claiming large areas currently under the jurisdiction of the Ukraine government. He's setting up a rationale to take more territory by force, in my view. And if we listened to his speech last night, and many of you did, I know, he's, uh, he's setting up a rationale to go much further. This is the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, as he indicated and asked permission to be able to do from his Duma. So let's begin to, uh, so I, I, I'm going to begin to impose sanctions in response far beyond the steps we and our allies and partners implemented in 2014. And if Russia goes further with this invasion, we stand prepared to go further as with sanctions. 
Who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbors? This is a flagrant violation of international law and demands a firm response from the international community. Over the last few months, we've coordinated closely with our NATO allies and partners in Europe and around the world to prepare that response. We've said all along, and I've told Putin to his face some month, a month, more than a month ago, that we would act together. And the moment Russia moved against Ukraine, Russia has now undeniably moved against Ukraine by declaring these independent states. So today, I'm announcing the first tranche of sanctions to impose costs on Russia in response to their actions yesterday. These have been closely coordinated with our allies and partners, and will continue to escalate sanctions if Russia escalates. We're implementing full blocking sanctions on two large Russian financial institutions, VEB and their military bank. We're implementing comprehensive sanctions on Russian sovereign debt. That means we've cut off Russia's government from Western financing. It can no longer raise money from the West and cannot trade in its new debt on our markets or European markets either. Starting tomorrow and continuing in the days ahead, we'll also impose sanctions on Russia's elites and their family members. They share in the corrupt gains of the Kremlin policies and should share in the pain as well. And because of Russia's actions, we've worked with Germany to ensure Nord Stream 2 will not, as I promised, will not move forward. As Russia contemplates its next move, we have our next move prepared as well. Russia will pay an even steeper price if it continues its aggression, including additional sanctions. The United States will continue to provide defensive assistance to Ukraine in the meantime, and will continue to reinforce and reassure our NATO allies. Today, in response to Russia's admission that it will not withdraw its forces from Belarus, I have authorized additional movements of U.S. forces and equipment already stationed in Europe to strengthen our Baltic allies, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Let me be clear. These are totally defensive moves on our part. We have no intention of fighting Russia. We want to send an unmistakable message, though, that the United States, together with our allies, will defend every inch of NATO territory and abide by the commitments we made to NATO. We still believe that Russia is poised to go much further in launching a massive military attack against Ukraine. Hope I'm wrong about that. Hope we're wrong about that. But Russia has only escalated its threat against the rest of Ukrainian territory, including major cities and including the capital city of Kyiv. There are, there are still well over 150,000 Russian troops surrounding Ukraine. And as I said, Russian forces remain positioned in Belarus to attack Ukraine from the north, including warplanes and offensive missile systems. Russia has moved troops closer to Ukraine's border with Russia. Russia's naval vessels are maneuvering in the Black Sea to Ukraine's south, including amphibious assault ships, missile cruisers, and submarines. Russia's moved supplies of blood and medical equipment into position on their border. You don't need blood unless you plan on starting a war. Over the last few days, we've seen much of the playbook that Secretary Blinken laid out last week in the United Nations Security Council come to pass. A major increase in military provocations and false flag events along the line of contact in the Donbass. Dramatically staged, conveniently on-camera meeting 
of Putin's Security Council to grandstand for the Russian public. And now, political provocation of recognizing sovereign Ukrainian territory as so-called independent re republics in clear violation, again, of international law. President Putin has sought authorization from the Russian parliament to use military force outside of Russian territory. And this set the stage for further pretexts of further provocations by Russia to try to justify further military action. None of us, none of us should be fooled. None of us will be fooled. There is no justification. Further Russian assault in Ukraine remains a severe threat in the days ahead. And if Russia proceeds, it is Russia and Russia alone that bears the responsibility. As we respond, my administration is using every tool at our disposal to protect American businesses and consumers from rising prices at the pump. As I said last week, defending freedom will have cost for us as well and here at home. We need to be honest about that. But as we will do, but as we do this, I'm going to take robust action to make sure the pain of our sanctions is targeted at a Russian economy, not ours. We're closely monitoring energy supplies for any disruption. We're executing a plan in coordination with major oil producing consumers and producers toward a collective investment to secure stability in global energy supplies. This will be a, this will blunt gas prices. I want to limit the pain to the American people are feeling at the gas pump. This is critical to me. In the last few days, I've been in constant contact with European leaders including with Ukrainian President Zelensky. Vice President Harris met in person with the leaders in Germany over the weekend in, at the Munich conference, including President Zelensky. At every step, we have shown the United States and our allies and partners are working in unison, which he hasn't been counting on, Mr. Putin. We're united in our support of Ukraine. We are united in our opposition to Russian aggression. And we're united in our resolve to defend our NATO alliance. And we're united in our understanding of the urgency and seriousness of the threat Russia is making to global peace and stability. Yesterday, the world heard clearly the full extent of Vladimir Putin's twisted rewrite of history, going back more than a century as he waxed eloquently, noting that, well, I'm not going to go into it, but nothing in Putin's lengthy remarks indicate any interest in pursuing real dialogue on European security in the year 2022. He directly attacked Ukraine's right to exist. He indirectly threatened territorial formerly held by Russia, including nations that today are thriving democracies and members of NATO. He explicitly threatened war unless his extreme demands were met. And there is no question that Russia is the aggressor. So we're clear-eyed about the challenges we're facing. Nonetheless, there is still time to avert the worst-case scenario that will bring untold suffering to millions of people if they move as suggested. The United States and our allies and partners remain open to diplomacy, if it is serious. When all is said and done, we're going to judge Russia by its actions, not its words. And whatever Russia does next, we're ready to respond with unity, clarity, and conviction. We'll probably have more to say about this as it moves on. I'm hoping diplomacy is still available. Thank you all very much.
President Biden speaking at the White House on uh, on Tuesday. Uh, for his part, Russian President Putin gave his clearest indication that Russian troops would launch an invasion farther into Ukraine. Russia has now said that it plans to evacuate its embassy in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, which is not an encouraging sign. There is no shortage of opinion pieces and punditry out there right now about what Putin wants and what NATO and the U.S. and European Union have done to help him to this point. I'm a uh, I'm a highly skeptical reader and I'm not delighted by some of the inherent nationalistic bias I'm finding in both directions in much of what I am reading and seeing the U.S. and NATO and Ukraine do bear some responsibility in helping us to get to this moment, even if none of it offers an excuse for the actual use of military aggression by Russia that we are now seeing, or the unilateral declaration of new republics carved out unilaterally from a sovereign nation. But if I had to cite the real, most immediate cause for what Putin is now carrying out, this piece from Washington Post editorial board today headlined, This is the way the post-war world ends, frankly resonated the most with me, at least for today. Uh, they write, uh, rebutting Mr. Putin's arguments is almost beside the point, but not entirely. The truth is that Ukraine is a member state of the United Nations whose security Russia itself undertook to respect 28 years ago in exchange for Ukraine's nuclear disarmament. Ukraine has not not been waging, quote, genocide against the Russian speaking speaking ethnic minority as Mr. Putin alleged, but defending itself from a 2014-2015 Russian destabilization campaign that created the breakaway regions and engineered the seizure of Ukraine's strategic Crimean region on the Black Sea. Mr. Putin's pseudo-history about the kinship of Russians and Ukrainians ignores his true reason for targeting Ukraine, and that is not Russian national security, but to preserve his own power in Moscow, which would be threatened by a successful democratic experiment in a former Soviet republic of Ukraine's size and cultural importance. Putin is facing his own troubles at home with a very real, if brutally suppressed, democracy movement in his own country. A successful and prosperous Western-style democracy on his own border is, I believe, a very real and very direct threat to him and to his hold on power. Just as democracy is a threat to authoritarians everywhere. Yes, even here in the U.S., and that is why we are seeing the rise of authoritarianism in this country as well right now, unfortunately. So I can't do much about what's going on in Ukraine right now as that situation changes and arguably deteriorates by the minute. But I can fight for democracy back here at home where it is similarly under threat right now, if not currently at the barrel of a gun. Not currently. To that end, the first elections of the 2022 U.S. primary season are already underway in Texas. And as we have been warning for some time, it is not going well. At least for those of us who still 
believe in democracy and that democracy is worth fighting for. That story and the president of the League of Women Voters of Texas joins us next to explain, well, this fine mess in Texas right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. The eyes of Texas are upon you all the live long day. Well, that song has a new meaning now, unfortunately. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, pretty much since the moment that the 2020 election wrapped up, if that's the proper word for it, many Americans have been duped into the notion that it is somehow still going on. But pretty much since then, we have been reporting on Republican efforts in states across the country to use Trump's false evidence-free claims that the presidential election was stolen from him in order to impose draconian new laws to make it harder for voters to vote, in particular by mail and easier for GOP controlled states to subvert legitimate election results that they do not like. 19 states now have passed laws making it tougher for people to vote. And 27 states are considering similar legislation, according to the Brennan Center for Justice. We've been reporting on these new laws, these new schemes, warning about them, and even volunteering to serve as a plaintiff representing the media in one of them, in the state of Georgia, where lawmakers, in addition to making it harder to vote, included provisions in their SB202 voter suppression bill that blocks the First Amendment rights of the public and the media to even report on elections and voting and tabulation itself in a number of ways that would normally help to assure public oversight of American democracy. But now, as the very first midterm primary election of 2022 is upon us, with early and absentee voting already underway in the great state of Texas and ending on Election Day next Tuesday, that's March 1st in Texas, the very real effects of these new voter suppression laws are now no longer theoretical. They're playing out in real time, in reality, in American elections and real votes. Many of them are being rejected and, in fact, in alarming numbers in Texas. Several uh, weeks ago, we reported on the enormous percentage of absentee ballot applications that were being rejected in Texas under the state's newly restrictive voting law, with election officials there sounding the alarm, explaining that they were not even sure how to legally help voters cure those ballot applications that were suddenly now defective under the new requirements imposed by the state. Even before the new restrictions, voting by mail in Texas has already was already uh, more difficult than just about any other state in the union, with largely only voters over 65 being allowed to even request absentee ballots unless a voter could prove that they were ill or would be out of town on Election Day. 
Moreover, the state made it unlawful for election officials to even tell voters who were eligible to vote by mail that they could do so if they applied to do so. But the new laws requiring certain voter ID information on absentee ballot applications that must match the information on file, even if the voter's registration record was created decades ago, has led to chaos and an enormous number of rejections of applications, even from those who have voted by mail without problems for years, even decades, in the Lone Star State. But now it's not only absentee ballot applications that are being rejected at an alarming rate, but actual absentee ballots themselves. 28 days, three forms, and several calls. That's what Pam Gaskin says it took for her to finally be able to cast her ballot in Texas. The 74-year-old has voted by mail for nearly a decade, but this year, she says a typically easy process turned into a, quote, nightmare, according to ABC News on Monday. They note that Texas Republicans passed a sweeping election overhaul bill last year known as Senate Bill 1, adding new restrictions for mail-in voting, expanding access to partisan poll watchers, and banning drive-through and 24-hour voting, which was utilized by Harris County, which includes Houston and its large African-American community, back in 2020. Gaskin and her husband John, who suffers from Parkinson's disease, were denied mail-in ballots twice. One reason, for the first time, voters were required to submit their Social Security number or their driver's license number. The problem... The new law says the ID number or other information provided must match the information they used when they first registered to vote. In Gaskin's case, that was 46 years ago. She says, I'm 74 years old. I can barely remember what I ate yesterday, so I certainly didn't remember what I put on my voter application 46 years ago. She's not alone. 30 percent. 30 percent of mail-in ballots were rejected or marked for rejection in Houston's Harris County when the law first went into effect. After the county gave voters like Gaskin the opportunity to try and correct the problem, the number lowered to about 13.5 percent rejection rate. According to ABC News, still a disturbingly large number, particularly for elderly voters confused about why their applications were rejected in the first place or what they can do about it. It took three forms, 28 days, several calls and a whole lot of guessing before Gaskin's mail in ballot was finally accepted. And she worries that other voters will not go through the lengths that she did to vote that unfortunately seems to be what the authors of this type of legislation are counting on. Reuters reports that in Harris County, home to Houston and 4.7 million people, about 35 percent of those ballots received by last Tuesday could not be accepted because voters did not fill in the correct voter ID number. And I'm talking about ballots here, not ballot applications, but actual ballots. Officials in Dallas County, the state's second most populous with 2.6 million residents, said they were sending back 26 percent of mail-in ballots. In Collin County, just north of Dallas, with roughly one million people, 25 percent of mail-in ballots are being rejected. James Slattery, an attorney with the Texas Civil Rights Project, says we've never heard of anything near as high as this. 
Gaskin, who took nearly a month to successfully cast her ballot, is a longtime member of the League of Women Voters and the daughter of civil rights activists who calls voting, quote, a blood bought right. When she entered college in 1965, Congress had just passed the Voting Rights Act. And as a student, she helped register black voters in Austin, Texas, some of whom were voting for the very first time, she said. She still helps register other voters and rarely misses an election herself, so she was stunned by how hard it was to navigate voting this year. She said, I have degrees in English from the University of Texas at Austin. I know how to read and follow directions, and I'm determined. I'm convinced that a lot of people who get these rejection letters will just give up. If she had this much trouble, imagine how many others in Texas have simply given up entirely this year. Grace Shemaine, the president of the League of Women Voters of Texas, described the run-up to next Tuesday's elections as a, quote, nightmare for voters. We tried to tell lawmakers, she said, during the legislative session that this was going to be a nightmare, and they went ahead and just passed this, this law anyway. Joining us now is Grace Shemaine, president of the League of Women Voters of Texas and a retired pediatric nurse practitioner who joined the league in 2012, inspired by her mother, a league member in North Carolina back in the 1960s, who, because she was registering African-Americans to vote at the time, ended up seeing a cross burned on the family's lawn. Grace Shemaine, welcome to the broadcast. I'm happy to be here. I'm delighted to have you here. I wish the circumstances were better. I am really worried about these stories coming out of Texas, Grace, uh, especially since this is just the first state of this midterm cycle to hold its primaries. Uh, before we dive into a few details, what, if anything, even the ostensible claims about it from state Republicans, what is the reason for these new restrictions? Was there any evidence of widespread absentee ballot fraud in 2020? In Texas, what are the Republicans who passed this claiming about this law? They are the um, head legal person, uh, Keith Ingram, from the Texas Secretary of State. Uh, he said that it was a very safe and secure election uh, when he was testifying during the, t uh, the legislative, mm -hmm. last legislative session. And, and that is true. It really was. And what's really amazing is that the people who actually won these uh, most of these elections, mm -hmm. uh, the election, the officials and the politicians, the ones who are writing these bills, were mm -hmm. the ones who won during that election. <laughs> and it was safe and secure. So really, I don't think they thought of these uh, this SB1 uh, voter suppression bills. I don't think they thought of these uh, ideas themselves. I think they came from someplace else and they're pushed out trying to meet uh, somebody else's agenda mm. of suppressing the vote even further here in Texas. As to the problems that it has already caused, clearly, uh, let me start with the absentee ballot applications. Do we have any sense of how many of those uh, ballot applications uh, were rejected, that election officials were not able to reach voters to help them cure the ballots in order to, you know, simply receive their ballots in, in the first place in time to vote. I imagine with those huge, uh, at least percentage numbers, uh, they couldn't have gotten in touch with everyone. 
Well, what they're required to do is send those voters whose application to vote by mail was rejected. They're required to send them a postcard, mm-hmm. like, an, like an envelope that has some postcards in it and some information and maybe another application. What they don't tell them is where they where the mistake was in their application. Oh. And so uh, it's been very difficult. The only time that, that they could call them is if the voter actually put in their contact information. So so, uh, so they were being rejected the, and didn't even weren't even being told why the ballot application was rejected? Right. They're not being told why the application was being rejected. They're just notified that, that it was a rejected application. Now, that voter can call the county and ask, why was it rejected? And mm-hmm. they might say, well, it was your it was your number. And, and they'd say, well, which number? <laughs> and they, they can't tell they can't tell me. They would say, uh, which number did you use? Uh-huh. Because, you know, the voter has to tell them the number. You know, it's uh-huh. either your driver's license number or your uh, Social Security number, mm-hmm. or probably the numbers that we used when you registered to vote. But some people didn't even use the number to register to vote because they didn't ask for them. If they're old enough, they didn't ask for those numbers. So it's just it's just a mess. If they were old enough, if they were old enough when they weren't asking for those numbers, and they go ahead this time and you know put on their Social Security number or their driver's license number, they would be rejected because their original applic- the original voter record did ha- had no number on it. The voter record may have had no number on it. So those numbers must be associated with the voter registration. And if they're not, then that voter uh, may have had to register again. <laughs> so they're asking... After all those years. <laughs> yeah. Good Lord. And as I understand it, when these applications began to be rejected, uh, election officials were not even clear on what the new law allowed them to do in order to help cure whatever problems uh, were suddenly occurring. Has that problem at least been sorted out by the have have they received guidance at the county level from the uh, secretary of state on how they are supposed to deal with these, these problems? Well, the guidance at first was to send out that message, you know, uh, in the mail that mm-hmm. that their application was rejected, right? Right. And then they, what came after a while, the Secretary of State finally said that they that people who were applying can put both numbers on their application, and so instead of just it, the application actually says your driver's license number, your personal ID number, or your election. Mm-hmm. identification certificate and if you don't have one of those the last four of your social security number so what came down from the secretary of state was ignore that bit and just put in both those numbers and that was helpful because most of the time one of those numbers is associated with your voter registration <laughs> number so i mean w- w- would the advice here be to just put in all the numbers if you happen to have them on onto any uh, absentee ballot uh, application or ballot itself Yes, that is absolutely what we've been uh, saying, even though that's not what the instructions say on the application and on the ballot. So we've been instructing everybody to put uh, 
both your driver's mm-hmm. license number and the last four of your Social Security number just to be safe. Now, uh, Grace Germain, I know that the new Texas law apparently disallows election officials from even letting eligible vote-by-mail voters know that they can do so, that they can apply to vote-by-mail or or uh, bars them from sending out applications unless they're specifically requested. Are third parties in Texas, like your League of Women Voters, actually able to do so under the new law? Can you reach out to voters and say, hey, here's an application. If you're over 65, you can fill this out and vote by mail? Yes. So uh, political parties and candidates and organizations may still promote or what they call solicit uh-huh. uh, voters to uh, apply to vote by mail. But uh, election officials and people who work for the government are not allowed to <laughs> at all. People whose job it is to help voters vote can't help voters vote. Not only that, the voter must call the county mm-hmm. and say, I would like an application to vote by mail be sent to me. And they may say, and I'd like one for my husband, too. And that person has to say, well, I need to talk to your husband. I can't just send you two applications. Your husband has to get on the phone and say that they actually uh, need an application or want an application, too. Wow. So... The, the unfortunately, the same problem that occurred with the absentee ballot applications now appears to be happening, as I understand it, with the actual absentee ballots themselves. If the voters are able to get through the maze required to get the ballot in the first place, why are the ballots themselves now being rejected? Because people aren't not only are they not used to it, it is it is complicated. Uh, you fill out your ballot, then you put it in a secret, secrecy envelope, then you put it in the carrier envelope, and then you must fill out bits on the carrier envelope, including your uh, ID. And, of course, it says, and if you don't have one of those, then the last four of your Social Security number. Mm-hmm. So that is confusing. Also, there is a new spot that's not required that asks for your contact information. Then you close the envelope, then you must sign the envelope on the outside. So there's many different steps. <laughs> and if you fail any one of them, that leads to a rejection? If you fail any one of them, it leads to rejection. The good news is we have a little bit of a cure process now. That means where voters are able to fix a problem sometimes, especially if it has to do with their ID number. And that that cure process, though, doesn't that have to... Well, what is that cure process? How does the uh, county reach out to the voters to let them know that they are missing a particular number? And how do they do it in time to make sure that ballot gets back to the, uh, back to the county uh, cured by next Tuesday? Right. If the county uh, notices that there is a problem and they have, and then they and the voter put in their contact information, mm-hmm. which is not required, then the county may contact that voter and let them know that there's a problem with their ballot. And then the voter would have to provide, uh, you know, either the last four of the Social Security mm-hmm. number or their driver's license number, and they might have to provide it uh, online, which is very interesting because it's not the easiest thing for older voters to get 
online mm-hmm. and try to fix an issue like this. Yeah, I know. Uh, And that's troubling in and of itself. And we're talking, uh, Grace, about some huge numbers here. I mean, 35 percent in in Harris County, uh, 26 percent in Dallas County. Now, this is a smaller turnout election because it's the uh, midterm primaries. But the numbers are going to be obviously much higher in November uh, if there aren't any changes. Do the uh, does the Texas law. Because I know that Harris County, for example, has stopped returning rejected ballots altogether as of last Thursday because they didn't think they could, you know, get them there to the voter and then back to the county in time. Um, and and I imagine the bulk of the absentee ballots are only now just beginning to come in. We're only now going to find out if they're rejected or not. Is there a right. period in Texas after Election Day where folks can come in and try to cure any problems that that cause these rejections? Or is it over and done as of the close of polls next Tuesday? They, they I believe that some of them may be able to be cured or fixed, depending on what the problem is. Uh, six days after the election, oh. if that, but the voters who are voting by mail in Texas is very limited, uh-huh. and so it would probably be applying to people who are sixty-five and over, or people who are disabled. Mm-hmm. That and those are the ones who have the annual ballot and vote in most of these elections, uh, and so the thought that this much older voter uh-huh. or a voter with a disability would be able to get up and over to the uh, 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 county election office uh-huh. and fix this issue. Uh, it's just not very heartening. No, it's not. There's a reason why those folks are voting uh, absentee in the first place, I, I would expect. So, you know, with all of these very obvious concerns, Harris County, uh, Houston election officials have been begging the Department, U.S. Department of Justice to take stronger action to protect voting rights in the state of Texas. I believe they've already filed a lawsuit, as has the League uh, and a number of other civil and and voting rights organizations. First, what could or should, if anything, the Department of Justice be doing here that they currently are not? That is a good question for the lawyers, and I don't know the answer. What I was hoping uh, was... I was hoping for some federal help. I mm-hmm. was hoping for some federal help through federal legislation, such as, you mm-hmm. know, updating the Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And it was so disappointing that that didn't happen mm-hmm. because we will be fighting this in every single uh, legislative session. And and it will not end here in Texas because that seems to be the way uh, the uh, legislators we're trying to control the electorate right now because uh, we've had a big change in our census. Mm-hmm. We have a lot more diversity here in Texas. We have a lot more uh, Latino voters. Mm-hmm. And the issue is uh, who do they want to vote in the election and how can they stop it? And it's just very disheartening to see this happening and that there's no help coming from uh the federal government is there uh, i believe that you guys have filed lawsuit uh against parts of this law at least is there any mm-hmm. uh hope that obviously it's not going to be solved before tuesday at this point but is there any uh do you have any belief that some of these uh, things will be 
heard and, and, and figured out one way or another, at least in time for the midterms themselves in November? I believe there's, uh, they're possibly scheduled to be heard in the summertime. So we're hoping to see some relief. Uh, I can't imagine why they would keep this uh, bad election bill that is impacting so many voters uh, in place the way it is now. It obviously doesn't work. It is a way to stop people who've been voting for a very long time, very successfully, and very securely and safely, and now uh, they're unable to participate in the democracy. And it's just, it's... uh, Bad news well, for democracy, actually. It is very bad news. And while you can't imagine they won't deal with it, you may need to broaden your imagination, especially in Texas, especially with the Fifth Circuit Court there. But, you know, I, I think, obviously, these problems are likely affecting both Democratic voters and Republican voters and independent voters alike. Uh, have, have you heard any concern expressed from Republican lawmakers, many of whom helped to adopt this bill, about what's going on here? It's a lot of their own voters that are going to be blocked here as well, I I should expect. I have not heard uh, from the Republic. I have not heard them apologizing or trying to fix the issue from the Republican uh, uh, candidates or from the Republican Party. They're still uh, saying the same things they've always said, which is is about election integrity or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's not the actual case. We have very safe and secure elections here in Texas, and this is just a way uh, that is impacting voters both in rural communities and in urban communities, but much more in urban communities, Mm -hmm. because that's where all the voters are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is why I asked you about that, because I've been, of course, reading a lot about this, and I'm surprised that I have not seen Republicans saying, yeah, maybe we need to fix some of this. Some of my voters are are, uh, are getting shut out. I haven't seen any of that. Uh, finally, Grace Shemaine, as to Election Day uh, coming up on Tuesday, Election Day voting, we're, we're you know a week from that or so now. Are there new uh, other provisions in SB1 that are going to affect what happens at the polling place on Election Day that has the, has the league concerned uh, about what could happen on Tuesday? Yes, there are, there are some that uh, impact voters who vote in person. And one of those impacts the same people. It's voters who have mm-hmm. a disability or voters who don't uh, read or speak English or speak or Spanish, and they need assistance at the polls with their ballot. And so with that, that uh, the assister now has to take a very specific oath that says they must only read exactly what's on the ballot. They can't give any other uh, point mm-hmm. or do anything else that would assist that voter. The issue is that the, that the poll watchers now have more freedom of movement, and they can be really up close and personal and watch those uh, assisters as they're helping those voters. And we think that that also may may uh, decrease the number of assisters who are willing to help uh, because they have to sign that oath and also may just be intimidating yeah. for those uh, voters with disabilities or voters who don't read or in English and need assistance at the polls because the poll watchers are going to be really up there watching closely yeah and find themselves concerned about uh you know the the people in in texas uh making an example somehow of them bringing down the law against them it's certainly going to have a chilling effect 
Grace Shemaine, you know, all my life as I grew up, the League of Women Voters was sort of the gold standard for nonpartisan, uh, you know, voting rights, uh, election support. To see the League of Women Voters in recent years uh, sort of targeted by Republicans as some sort of a partisan, you know, lefty organization has been exceedingly troubling for me to watch. So, I, you know, I just thank you. Uh, thank the League of Voters of Texas and nationally for the uh, critical work you guys are doing. Hopefully you're not intimidated by all of this. And uh, boy, all I can say is good luck on Tuesday. Grace Shemaine, the president of the League of Women Voters of Texas. Uh, you can get more information on them at lwvtexas.org. And if you're in Texas and you need some advice, some help, some information on voting, you can go to vote411.org, a, a guide for Texans uh, trying to cast their vote next Tuesday. Grace Shemaine, really appreciate your time here today, and good luck next Tuesday. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Grace. Boy, um it's this pretty is, scary, isn't it? It's real scary. I mean, this is no longer theoretical. That's, you know, that's the lesson here to me. We've been talking about this now for uh, the last year. That now, it's going to be a state-by-state, state, precinct-by-precinct fight, yes. And now right it vote. is happening. Yep. And now people are losing their vote. When we're out here, you know, uh, fighting for democracy around the world, and back here in our own country, in our own home states, well, in your home state, does yeah, In uh, many states. Voters are being denied the right to vote for ridiculous and, I would argue, dangerous reasons. Yep. All right. Quick break. And we are back with Desi Doyen and the latest Green News Report. That's next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. You know, it's like uh, heads they win, tails they win when it comes to the uh, oil companies. The uh, prices spiked today, did they, on the threat of war once again, Desi Doyen? Of course they did. They're, uh, last time I checked, hovering around $100 a barrel, which is going to um, increase gasoline prices for consumers at home. And yes, you are correct that the oil industry profits quite a bit from war. And this was uh, not long since, what, it was about a year ago when they were actually paying people to take oil off their hands? Yes, that is correct. And now they're back to uh, being the most profitable industry in the whole wide world again. That didn't take long. No, it didn't. Uh, funny how that happens. All right, speaking of which... It's our latest Green News Report. Scientists predict the change in climate could mean more extreme conditions. Now it's raising attention to how the weather will impact our economy. Weather disasters impacted one in ten homes in the U.S. last year. Biden Interior Department halts new oil and gas leases in legal fight over costs to climate. Plus... There are homes of countless natural and cultural wonders that... Uh, 
that should be conserved for all to enjoy today, tomorrow, for generations to come. President Biden unveils historic $1 billion in funding for Great Lakes cleanup. All of those historic stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. These are not only investments we're making the Great Lakes. We're rebuilding America. We're going to invest in America and build a better America than we found. Well, that shouldn't be hard. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we're trying to rebuild a better America, but it is going to be costly at this rate, unfortunately. Yes, yes, it will. And that's because extreme weather disasters are extremely expensive. Extreme weather disasters affected one in every 10 homes in the U.S. last year and caused nearly $57 billion in property damage in a single year. That's according to a new report by property analytics firm CoreLogic. They found that in 2021 alone, 13 major disasters from hurricanes to tornadoes, wildfires and winter storms impacted 15 million homes and more than 40 percent of Americans live in a county that was struck by a climate related disaster in the last year. Well, we could do something about that, but then the oil and gas companies wouldn't get all of that free money. Repeat extreme weather disasters are also raising the cost of homeowners insurance. The findings drive home the devastating toll of disasters that are becoming more common and more costly because of climate change. A different study has, for the first time, identified how changes in rainfall patterns induced by global warming dampen economic growth. I see what you did there. Dampen economic growth. Very Uh good. Uh A known consequence of man-made global warming has been the observed increase in extreme rainfall events worldwide. Researchers publishing in the journal Nature found that precipitation shocks, both deluges and droughts, significantly reduced productivity across multiple sectors and industries, from transportation to agriculture and service industries, and that in turn created a drag on an entire region's economic growth. They warn that current economic models probably don't realistically capture future costs associated specifically with climate-changed rainfall and likely underestimate costs that climate change will impose on human society. Climate-changed rainfall, kind of like those 10 inches of rain that they received in uh, Rio, Brazil, in three hours last week? Exactly. Oh. In other news, the Biden Interior Department will indefinitely pause all federal oil and gas leases and permits in the wake of a Trump-appointed judge's ruling that blocked the federal government from using a key climate metric known as the social cost of carbon. The social cost of carbon is used to calculate the real costs of climate change, and it's used in a range of government decisions, from pollution regulations to permits for new oil, gas, or coal extraction. But the Trump judge just tried to ignore that? The Trump judge struck it down. The suit was brought by Republican state attorneys general seeking to increase fossil fuel extraction. But in an ironic twist, the consequence from the judge's ruling blocking that metric, at least initially, is that the administration will freeze all decisions about new federal oil and gas drilling and halt oil and gas lease sales and new permits on public lands indefinitely. Finally, it's going to allow the most significant restoration of the Great Lakes in the history of the Great Lakes. 
President Biden was in Lorain, Ohio, late last week to unveil $1 billion in funding from the infrastructure law that will go toward cleanup and restoration of the Great Lakes. The bulk of the funding is targeted to restoring 25 sites across six Great Lakes states that the Environmental Protection Agency 30 years ago designated as severely degraded areas of concern that have been damaged by decades of industrial and agricultural pollution. The unprecedented restoration funding will address water quality, harmful algae blooms, invasive species, pollution and habitat degradation, and will go to upgrading infrastructure, vital for shipping, transportation, outdoor recreation, and clean drinking water. Biden noted that each cleanup project will generate jobs and that will ripple across the state's economies. Every dollar we spend cleaning up the Great Lakes generates between three and four dollars in economic benefit. That's a fact. And it's a really good investment. We're also showing that growing the economy and creating jobs can go hand in hand with protecting the environment, not decimating it, meeting the moment on climate change. And it's all starting in Lorraine? Yep. Sweet. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com, where we are celebrating 13 years now of the Green News Report. Thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. When I met my sweet Lorraine, Lorraine, Lorraine. You know, it's just one of those days when the Green News Report is the most uplifting point <laughs> of the of the day. Uh, you know we're in bad shape. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But hey, that's a positive thing. And you know, it the also... The cleanup of the... The cleanup of yeah. the Great Lakes. Yeah, the, the finally. Huge long funding. overdue. This is truly historic funding beyond anything, uh, you know, triple anything that ever has been appropriated before. And you know, I'm so old, I remember when former President Trump repeatedly tried to slash funding for Great Lakes restoration yes. in his budget proposals, yep. and then would try to take credit for restoring it. Yeah, oh, so he was uh, both again, again it, and uh, took credit for it. Yeah. And now there's, but there's a whole bunch more money in yes. the uh, infrastructure bill. And it's actually going out. And it's actually getting put to its purpose and yes. actually getting done. Yes, it's something is getting week. done. How Joe Biden does all of that at the same time he tries to forestall uh, war in Eastern Europe, I don't know. I can't keep up with it for an hour uh, each day, much less 24-7. So good luck to us all. All right, we've got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. To my guest today, Grace Shemaine of the League of Women Voters of the great state of Texas. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com anytime the server is up which i hope is forever <laughs> and you can drop me email if you like i am bradcast at bradblog.com and you can find me on the facebooks and the twitters at the brad blog all right that's it we'll see you there until we see you here next time i'm brad friedman and i mean it good luck world I can't wait until that lucky day when the marry sweet Lorraine. Ba da ba 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 